Thank you so much. Um, I just want to say I feel a little bit tipsy. Um, I just want to say that from the start, just in case uh, the next 45 minutes doesn't flow as smoothly as I would like or as you would like, uh, I'm just going to blame it on the Holy Spirit, so I hope that's okay with you. Um, Let's just have a moment, shall we? Why don't you close your eyes, lift up your hands, take a deep breath in. See, I'm, I'm not going to invite the Holy Spirit to come because I'm pretty sure he's already here. <laughs> and so why don't you just take deep, wonderful breaths of Holy Spirit. <laughs> why don't you say to him, Holy Spirit, I am yours. Go all out on me today. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would give me clarity in my brain, even though I feel you all over me. And I pray, Spirit of Revelation, that you would ignite truth in our hearts today. That we would leave here forever changed. Never able to go back. That you would do something here that can never be undone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please feel free to keep drinking as I speak. Because it's much more fun if the Holy Spirit is having a lot of fun with you as I'm speaking. And a lot of fun with me too. Um, San stole some of my words. Because I don't know pretty much anyone in this room other than my team, other than Santino. Um, And like he said, I was on training with him. And I just wanted to take a moment before I do any preaching or teaching um, to honor San. Because um, we did training, what was it now, four or five years ago, something like that together. And I tell you what, those two years of training with Santino were really amazing because he's full of encouragement. He is someone who gives all of his strength to you. Every time I saw San, whether I was happy or sad, by the end of the conversation, I felt thoroughly built up and encouraged because he is a man who will pour courage into you when you speak to him. So I just want to honor you publicly. You're an amazing, amazing man, and I honor you as my friend. Yeah. Stand up and let's just honor this amazing man. I want to say something. The foundation of the kingdom is honor. And let's be a people who are not shy to honor one another lavishly. You'll notice that... um, as, as a team from King's Arms, we, um, Sue, we're adopting you as King's Arms, by the way. Us as a team from King's Arms, we, we love to stand up and cheer people on. And the reason for that isn't that it's a gimmick or we're just being funny. It's because the Bible tells us to outdo one another in honor. And we want to be people who are living a lifestyle of honoring one another. And particularly in English culture, there is a shyness around bigging one another up. Because we want to keep people humble and we don't want to make someone too big for their boots. That goes against 
everything in kingdom culture. By the way, this isn't part of my preach. I'm just going to say this. It goes against everything in kingdom culture because kingdom culture is about honor. And what you honor, you then receive their gift into you. And grace flows from that person to you. So I just want to encourage you, be a community that outdoes one another in honor. Make it a fun lifestyle game every day. Who can I honor? Who can I lavishly pour on today? Because that's the foundation of the kingdom, because that's who our father is, and that's how he operates with us. Anyway, before we get into a preach, I thought it'd be fun to do some words of knowledge. So team, I hope you're ready to go. Let's go for a maximum of two words of knowledge. Just wait there for a second. I'm just going to explain this. Often we think a word of knowledge is, um, is one of us up the front or whoever it is saying something that sounds like a good idea and then we ask God and plead with God to do whatever word of knowledge we've had in the moment. I think that's us seeing words of knowledge incorrectly. When God speaks to us and gives us a word of knowledge, what he's saying is, this is my idea and my decree in heavenly places. And he gives us the opportunity to partner with him and to say, as it is in heaven, so be it on earth. So when we release a word of knowledge in this room, we're not then going to beg God to do what was already his idea. But what I'm going to do is invite you to stand up if a word of knowledge makes sense for you. And I'm going to say, take it in faith for God is decreeing healing over people today. And that's what the words of knowledge are about. And what we'll do is we'll test it out over the session. And by the end of the session, we'll get some testimonies of what God has done. Does that make sense? So what we'll do is I'll get the team up and Each of us will give a couple of words of knowledge. At the end of all of the words of knowledge, I'm just going to invite you to stand. We're going to speak a blessing on what God has already started, and then I'll get you to test it out throughout the course of the preach, okay? I'm going to start because I felt like God spoke to me for a number of people in the room, actually. I was reading Psalm 42, and this verse jumped out at me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. And I felt like God started speaking to me for a number of people in this room who hate to go to sleep because the nighttime is a time where you um, feel troubled and anxious. It's where you get nightmares. It's when you lie awake for hours and you feel like there's a real oppression on you at night. And this is going to hit a number of people in the room. But I felt like God was speaking to these people and saying, you are going to be taken into a season where you literally start hearing his lullaby over you because the Lord says that at nighttime, he sings songs over us. And so the promise for those people who have been struggling with sleep and really dread the nighttime hours, God is saying he's going to turn that around for you. And you're going to go into a season where you start hearing songs sung over you from heavenly places. And he's going to turn around what the enemy has sought to bring harm to you with. He's going to turn it around for it to be a blessing for you. So that's going to be for a number of you in the room. I feel like there's somebody here who's had a loss of hearing due to your ears being unprotected in a job that you've done. It might be a job you did a while ago or, or more recently. Um, and somebody else um, here with a left hip joint that's going to get healed. Okay. I saw some lost keys and, um, and I felt like uh, it just represented um, the, 
the whole situation that you're going to find keys to a situation that's going to unlock a situation. That's, that's all I had really had on that. And the other, I had a picture of a clock, and, um, and I felt God say that it's time. It's time, that you've been waiting a while, and God says it's time, and that hopefully will mean something to you. Um, like Cassia, I got a sense that there's a number of people in the room that are dealing with isolation at quite a, a severe level. And God just reminded me of the parable of the lost sheep and that Jesus, his passion is to go looking for the one that has been lost. And you feel so, you've got yourself into such a a dark, trapped place where you feel like nobody knows you and nobody sees you and nobody understands. And the Father really wants you to know that he leaves all of this celebration to come looking for you and pursuing you with such a passion and such an understanding of exactly where you're at and exactly what you're going through. Um, And some of it is just going to be you breaking that agreement with isolation and saying, I choose not to partner with that. I choose to agree with the Father's love for me. And that's the beginning of the breakthrough is inviting him to partner with you. And the other more specific thing is I'm thinking that there's someone here who's damaged their Achilles tendon um, through some kind of sports injury and I I had that myself and so I always I bring it if I can because I want to see other people get that healing so Um, I've got two the first is there are some people here who had broken bones and they've healed but there's still a bit of pain um, in the bone sort of when you straighten it or when you use it or whatever it's just never quite recovered fully um and so god's fixing that and um and the other is there are i feel like this is for four people but i'm not totally confident of the number um that you when you were younger you were kind of silenced like especially to do with your singing sort of people said things that made you feel like you weren't good enough and that you didn't really want to open up um and god's healing that because you were never meant to be silent and your voice and your message is powerful so yeah Okay, um, so I got a phrase, lateral crack, and I don't know if that is actually a medical term or what, or whether it means something to someone. And the, what I saw was, um, I don't know if this is even related to that phrase, but um, someone or some people who get migraines, and it's sort of across like the back right-hand side of the head. Um, and the other thing I saw was um, some kind of bone damage um, across, and what I saw was the top of the left foot, um, and that may be slightly off, but... That's, that's what I got. So if that resonates with you, then great. Okay, I've got um, <clears throat> a situation that some people may be in to do with making the right godly decision uh, or doing it your own way. And uh, I think it's either to do in relation to a work, um, some work that you're doing, your job or, or relationship. And, yeah, my... The other thing is my heel is hurting, so I think it's to do with what Sue was sharing. It's down in that area. Okay, I, I want to bring the same word about I've got the word metatarsal. So something to do with bones in your feet. I feel like there's some people with lumps. I think there's three ladies who've discovered some kind of lumps, particularly around underneath your arm area. And then because I've got the mic, I'm going to be kicking and go for kicking more. Um, <laughs> I also feel like God wants to heal people with metal pins or metal plates in their bodies. We can ask God for healing for that, to get that to disappear. And then the last thing I feel 
are people with retina conditions. You've got scratches on your retina that causes a blurring. Sometimes God wants to heal that. Thank you, team. Brilliant. Okay, if any of those made sense to you, please stand up. I'm sure there's going to be quite a few people in the room. Why don't you just lift up your hands and start thanking God, thanking Papa for what he's done. Father, we just thank you for your words and decrees in heavenly places. We thank you that heaven is a healthy place and there is no sickness, no anxiety, no isolation in heaven. And so in Jesus' name, we partner with what's happening in heaven. We say, as it is in heaven, be on earth in this moment. And so I speak healing to sick bodies in the name of Jesus. I say, be made whole in Jesus' name. Pain, retreat, and dis disappear in the name of Jesus. No more pain in joints. No more pain in bones in the name of Jesus. I speak to skin disorders and I say, be healed. Skin, be restored to full health in the name of Jesus. Peace come upon the anxious. Thank you, Papa, for songs in the night. We declare open ears across this room to hear heavenly songs in the nighttime. (laughs) And thank you, Lord, that you command your steadfast love in the day. (laughs) You have commanded it from yourself. And so we press into your steadfast love. We thank you (laughs) for heavenly miracles being ignited on the earth even now. Hmm. You're so good. You're so good, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm just going to encourage you, take a seat, but throughout this meeting, start testing out if you can. I appreciate some of these things will need longer time to test out, but start testing out because at the end of the meeting, we're going to get some testimonies of what God has done. Look, God is a healer. So we don't have to press him or push him. We don't have to hope against hope that he might turn up and do something. Because when God is in the room, he cannot help but be himself. And he is healer. That is his name. And so when he is with us, people will be healed. So I feel utterly confident, even though I don't have any goosebumps right at this moment, but I feel utterly confident because healer is in the room, we will see healings, full stop. That's just who he is. And we can be utterly confident in that as a people. Right, okay, I'm going to crack on. I get asked sometimes why we do Father Heart conferences and um, why we have to be so emotional and shouldn't we um, get on with the mission that God has put us on. Um, I get teased about it sometimes. I just want to share a little bit of my story of why um, I think this is one of the most, if not the most important revelation to the church in these days. Um, I, I was born in a Christian family. I cannot remember a day when I didn't love Jesus and didn't know of his love for me. Um, right from early on, I got baptized in the Spirit when I was about six or seven and felt a call from God to um, go into full-time vocational ministry at some point in my life, felt a passion for the church, a passion for the lost, have, have always been in the, in the world of God and his kingdom. So um, God being a father was never an alien concept 
concept for me. I felt very comfortable with that. At the same time, I've got um, wonderful parents. They love Jesus. They're both in full-time ministry. And, and so my parents modeled to me really well who God is and what he's like. And so if you'd asked me about five years ago if I knew God as father, I would have said, absolutely, I have no problem with God being my father, and I feel very loved by him as his daughter. And then a a number of years ago now, I um, had the joy of going to a Father Heart conference led by John and Carol Arnott. And um, just before I got to the meeting, um, I felt God start speaking to me. And he said to me, if you come into this meeting as a leader, because by that point I'd been in church leadership for a number of years, if you come into this meeting as a leader, you will miss me. You have to come into this meeting as a child. And God started speaking to me and saying, you need to take your leader hat off and you need to put your child hat on. Because what I tended to do in meetings, because uh, I have a pastoral gift and because I'm so used to being in a leadership setting, is I would analyze the room for pastoral implications all of the time. And often I wasn't even aware I was doing it, but it was just the way my brain was wired. So people would be encountering God even even if I was encountering God, it would all be processed through a lens of what are the pastoral implications? What are the leadership implications? What are we to do with this, whatever it is that's happening in this room? How will the church respond next week to whatever this is? And that's just how my brain was wired. And God in his kindness said to me, if you do that, you, you will have a great moment of analysis, but you won't meet me. And you won't be changed. And so I walked into that room really choosing to turn off all my leadership um, antennae and instead choosing to be a child. Children are full of fascination and wonder. Children are quick to believe. They're not skeptical. They're not questioning in a skeptical way. They're questioning in a curious way of tell me more. I want to figure out everything about what you've just told me. Children are naturally open and excited about what they see before them. And so I really want to say to you guys today, take your leader hat off, take your pastor hat off, take your adult Christian hat off, and put your child hat on. Be open to fascination and wonder. (laughs) There's a great quote by the amazing um, British author G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. He was a a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and just a brilliant thinker. And he talks about, I'm going to be paraphrasing him, but he talks about how God is a God of wonder and fascination. We assume that there are countless daisies in the world because they just need to be there, or there are countless sunrises and sunsets because that's the way God created the rhythms of the world. But what if actually there are countless daisies and sunsets and sunrises and everything else in the world because God is a God of relentless fascination and wonder, just like a child. So every time he creates a new daisy, he goes, wow, look at that. Oh, the petals are so pretty. Just like a child would. And G.K. Testerton says this, we have lost our fascination and so have grown older than our father. I want to encourage you today, put your child hat on and get lost in the fascination and wonder of who he is. 
That conference that I went on changed my life. It was a few days and God utterly undid me. If you knew me then and you see me now, I am a different person and I can pinpoint it to that one conference. Because although I knew God as father in my head, he did something in those few days that totally unraveled me inside out. And I know him as father in a completely different way now. He shed light on lies that I was believing right from the beginning of my childhood that I'd never picked up on. And I want to tell you that is exactly what God is going to do today in so many of your lives. He's going to start unraveling you inside out in a really good way. And he's going to do something that is irreversible. He's going to do something that totally changes your outlook inside out and you'll never be the same again. So I believe the message of God as Father is important because I've experienced it and it's changed my life. I believe it's important for two other reasons. Firstly, it's this, that Malachi says in the last days, God will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children so that the land will not be destroyed. See, when we understand the heart of God to us as Father, and our hearts get turned to Him as His children, what happens is literally a deeper salvation comes, not just on us, but on those around us, because there is something infinitely powerful about understanding, not just in your head, but in your heart, the truth of belonging to the family of God. And so part of God's intentions in the last days is to turn the hearts of His children towards him and to bring a greater revelation of himself as father so that he can bring greater blessing on the land. The second reason is this. Jesus came to show us the ultimate revelation of who the father is. And he came as the son revealing a father. The primary revelation we have of God is as father. And if we see God through any other revelatory lens before that of Father, we will understand him in a skewed way. This is what I mean. Jesus showed us the ultimate revelation as Father, which means even though we know God as creator and ruler and king and Lord, we must see all of that through the lens of him being a Father. He is a father primarily who is also king. He is a father primarily who also judges the nations. He is a father primarily who rules the world. He is a father primarily who is creator of all things. If you approach God with any of those other things as your primary lens, you will not see him clearly. If you approach him firstly as king who happens to be a father or ruler who happens to be a father or creator or judge or anything else that we have as revelation of who he is, who happens to be a father, we will not see him clearly because the primary lens that he shows himself to us as is father. And I believe there's something that's happened in the church where Father has not been the primary revelation of who he is to us, which has meant that we've gone off on slight tangents rather than understanding the wholeness of who he is. 
And in this day, God wants to restore the proper vision of who he is. The beauty of him being father primarily is that a father is life-giving. You're only a father by definition if you have produced children. The father by definition is an out outgoing, outflowing source of life. Even before creation, the Father in all eternity, because of his name and personhood as Father, has always been overflowing within the Trinity with life. And the Father has a son who has, he has in all eternity been pouring out love on. Jesus says in John 17, before creation, you loved me. The Father wants to show himself as Father so we will know fullness of life and so that we will be undone by eternal, relentless love. All other revelations come through that lens. So, I hope you agree with me to put your child hat on. This is all by way of introduction. Because this message is not just a side message for the church. This is a key message. Because through this lens, we will see everything else clearly and rightly. The Bible tells us we're God's children. It tells us he's our father. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to show us the Father. And I think one of the most wonderful passages that we can read together where Jesus really shows us who the Father is and what he's like is in Luke 15. So I'm going to let you flick there while I um, just introduce and open it up to us. The passage opens with um, Jesus surrounded by a crowd as usual. And the Pharisees are looking at him, and Jesus is surrounded by sinners, and the Pharisees really don't like that because they had preconceptions of who the Father was based on their experiences and their assumptions, which were incorrect. So when Jesus came and surrounded himself with sinners, and Jesus showed love to those who the Pharisees felt were unworthy, they could not recognize the Father in him because they'd already made their minds up about who the Father was, and Jesus didn't look like that to them. Our experiences and our preconceptions will have told us that the Father is like something, but the Holy Spirit wants to bring a recalibration to so many of our minds because our experiences of our earthly fathers and mothers will have told us something about who God is. But often that thing will be incorrect because the Holy Spirit needs to bring a recalibration so we see the Father as Jesus revealed him. And here we go in Luke 15, Jesus teaching on who the Father is. (laughs) Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. 
There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What kind of father is our father? Firstly, he's a careful father. He's neither careless nor forgetful with you. I love the story. There's 99 sheep. One gets lost. And Jesus says, which one of you would leave your 99 sheep and go for the one? The answer to that question is actually not many of us. We would stay with the 99. A simple calculation tells you that if you leave your 99 and you go for the one, you may not have many left when you come back. And when Jesus starts telling the parable of the lost sheep, he's doing something that's actually quite tongue-in-cheek because the Pharisees would know exactly what he was talking about because Ezekiel talks about the shepherds of Israel who would not go after the stray sheep. 
but that they saw themselves as shepherds who were important and they fattened themselves with food, but they did not care for the lost sheep of Israel. They did not go after the brokenhearted. They did not bind up the wounded, but they left those that were lost to be lost. But what religion cannot keep, grace is able to restore. And so Jesus begins this parable as the Pharisees who were self-inflated and thought they knew what the Father looked like were angry because Jesus is with the sinners and loving on the lost. And so Jesus starts his revelation of the Father saying, which one of you, if a sheep was lost, would go after it? The answer for them, the religious folk, was none of us. And yet Jesus brings a totally different revelation of Father. And he says, but this shepherd, he left his 99 because he could not forget the one. He was not careless. He was not forgetful. He could not abandon. It was not in his nature to leave the one. Your father is neither careless nor forgetful with you. I know there are so many in this room who will have promises that you've stored up for years and you're saying, God, what happened to these promises? Have you forgotten? It is impossible for him to forget for he is a father who loves you and is attentive and is so careful that he would leave the 99 for the one. Some of you are in a place where you feel abandoned and lost. And Jesus comes to reveal a father who will not abandon even the one. Isaiah tells us, even if a nursing mother should forget her son, the Lord God will never forget those. He's graven our names on his hands. You are not forgotten. You are not lost. He is a careful, attentive father. The beautiful thing is that Job tells us that the only thing God does forget is our sin. Job says, you are watchful of my steps, but you do not count my sin. Isn't that incredible that our Father who is revealed to us as a shepherd who will not abandon even the one... He watches every single step of yours to love on you and to do you good. But he does not count your sin. It's lost and forgotten. The father is not careless. He's not forgetful. He is so concerned with us. And I tell you what, this is one of the primary things that the world needs to hear, not about a God of power, but about a God of love who cares for people. Because the more I encounter people on the streets, they're not asking if if God is real, is he powerful? They're asking if God is real, does he care? 
I love that story of when Jesus and his disciples are in the boat and there's a storm all around them. And you may have heard me talk about this before if you've ever heard me, but the storm is raging all around them. Jesus is fast asleep. The disciples are terrified, thinking that they're going to die. This is experienced fishermen in the boat, so they're not just being melodramatic. It's a bad storm. And they're saying, where is Jesus? Who's seen Jesus? We need all the help we can get. And someone says, he's fast asleep. They wake him up and they say to him, Master, do you not care that we're drowning? And he gets up and he calms the storm and he turns to them and he says, have you no faith? And often we equate that with the question of, have you no faith that I had power to calm the storm? He's not asking them that question. His question is in response to their question, which was not a question of power, but was one of love. Master, do you not care that we're drowning? Have you no faith? So many of us are sitting in a boat that feels like it's about to capsize. So many of the people out there, the ones who Jesus loves and gave his life for, are sitting in boats about to capsize and are asking, do you not care? Is there anybody out there who cares? The answer is yes. He's an attentive, careful father. He cares. The revelation the father comes to bring to us is this of a God who cares. So many of our whys are rooted in this question of the heart. I heard Danny Silk from Bethel Church speaking on the question why. And how the question why isn't really a question at all. It's like when you say to a child, you can't have ice cream for dinner. And they turn around and they say to you, why? They're not actually asking for your reasoning. What they're saying to you is, I don't like your answer. Try again. (laughs) And often that's our questioning of why. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? What we're really saying is, God, I don't need a, a breakdown of your reasoning. I'm just trying to say to you, I don't like your decision. Try again. But often those heart processes, which I'm not belittling because they're important and God cares about them, often the questions of why are rooted in a question of heart. And if you dig deeper than our whys, you'll hit this question as the foundation every time. Do you not care? Answer that question and everything else changes. Just before Julian and I got married, um, about a year and a half ago now, his mum got very sick, um, was admitted into hospital, um, and the night before our wedding, we got a call saying that she was not likely to make it through the night. And we started having to make some decisions about what would happen if she died on our wedding day. Would we go through the wedding? Would we not? And as you can imagine, it was a pretty stressful time. Thankfully, Jesus kept her alive. (laughs) She didn't die on our wedding day, and she's alive and well today. But there was a lot of disappointment to process after that. We felt like we'd been swept up in something, and Although the day was wonderful and we were able to get married, there were so many questions of why in my heart. Why when we'd waited so long for the right person? Why when we'd waited in purity, pressing on, trying everything to serve God and then found the right person, feeling like this is a gift from Jesus and then it all started to go horribly wrong just before what should have been a day of great celebration. 
And so for a number of months, this question of why and disappointment kept going round and round in circles in my heart until one day I was in a meeting where God thoroughly undid me so that I started laughing and kept laughing for about an hour and a half, weeping through the tears. I was in so much pain, I cannot tell you, because of the laughter. I literally howled with laughter. I'm not talking about pretty giggles. I'm talking about room-shaking howls of laughter. It wasn't dignified. But in that moment, God started speaking to me about a number of things. And one of the things he showed me was me on our wedding day. And he started showing me the angels that he posted guard for me on that day because he cares. And I tell you what, in that one moment as I realized Jesus had my back, every why and disappointment left. He never answered why he let it happen. I don't believe, by the way, the sickness is from God. But he never let me know why he let that battle happen in that moment. But he did let me know that he cared in that moment. And so posted extra strength around me. I don't need to know why. I know he cares. For many of us in this room, we're asking the wrong question. The devil loves us to go round and round and round in circle with whys because they are entirely irrelevant at the end of the day. Because he never wants you to ask the deepest question of your heart. God, do you care? I want to encourage some of you to strip away the brokenness and the hurting. Again, I'm not making it irrelevant or trying to make it small, the pain in your hearts. What I'm saying is God wants to relieve the deepest pain and that will take care of everything else. He is a father who cares for us at his own cost. See, the the lost sheep would by that point be totally a wreck. I've been reading some commentaries because, funnily enough, I'm not an expert on sheep and shepherding them. But I have read that a sheep that wanders off and gets lost basically has the equivalent of a nervous breakdown and will not walk. So at that point, the shepherd has one option, which is to pick up that sheep and put it on his shoulders. There's no other way to save that sheep. And so the shepherd does what is costly to him to save that sheep. The same for the father with the lost son. It is costly for the father, and we'll talk about why in a moment, but it's costly for the father as he becomes undignified to spare his son. It's costly for the father as he puts the ring and the robe back onto the son. But we have a father who loves us at his own cost. (laughs) And the importance of this is that so many of us are trying to pastor and counsel people having never experienced the care and the comfort from heavenly heavenly papa for ourselves. The problem with that is that you cannot give what you haven't got. And we wonder why our pastoring is ineffective and why our counseling takes forever and a day to see any freedom come to people. And it's because the Bible says we comfort those with the comfort we have received. 
You cannot give what you haven't got any more than you can return from where you haven't gone. This is revelation that we have to get primarily for ourselves. You cannot help another along this way unless you've gone there first. He is a father who is not careless or forgetful. He is a father who is full of care and comfort at his own cost. He is a father who is lavish, or as one of my friends likes to say, he is not afraid to love us over the top. Um, A few years ago, God showed me this in a really funny way, which may seem totally insignificant and small, and I suppose in some ways it was, but uh, it, it totally changed my understanding of who my heavenly papa is. Um, my friend and I were talking about whether God is really lavish or abundant, whether he wants to bless us beyond our needs. And we decided we'd do a little experiment and we'd ask Jesus for something entirely selfish. So we were thinking about this and I said, I I love flowers. I absolutely love it when someone gives me a bunch of flowers. It's one of my favorite things. So I said, I would like Jesus to give me some flowers. That was going to be my entirely unnecessary but fun thing that I wanted from Jesus. And um, she she said something, to be honest, I can't remember what she said. But anyway, um, within a couple of weeks of that conversation, my friend who worked in a beautiful office in London, she was walking past reception, saw a ginormous bunch of flowers at reception, and she just commented to the receptionist, these flowers are amazing. The reception said, yeah, they really are, aren't they? The sad thing about this is that every Friday we bin the flowers because of health and safety over the weekend. And every Monday we get a fresh bunch of flowers. So it's just so sad because they're so wasted. And my friend said, oh, uh, that is sad. And the receptionist said, how about I give them to you every Friday? And my friend said, yeah, that'd be great. Thing is, I lived with this friend. So that very day, she turns up with a gigantic bunch of flowers that are beautifully put together. She walks in the door and I'm like, where are they from? She smiles and said, Jesus. And they told me this story. Our house was filled with flowers for the next few weeks and months. Every week we'd get another beautiful bouquet of flowers. (laughs) And every time someone would walk into our flat, they would receive a prophetic revelation of who the Father is. Because we were able to say, he's a lavish God who smiled at our conversation and thought, you want a bunch of flowers, do you? So a couple of weeks after that, I was cleaning up our kitchen. I'm a little bit OCD when it comes to cleaning up. Anyway, (laughs) Julian's like, yes. Anyway, so I'm cleaning up our kitchen, and I just thought to myself, just a brief thought, you know, what we really need is a bread bin, which is, of course, never a need, but it's what I wanted in that moment. What we need is a bread bin. It'll sort out all these crumbs. Anyway, didn't think anything of it. That evening, I get a knock on the door. My friend is holding a brand-new giant bread bin. Hi, I don't know if any of you could use this, but we've got two on our gift list for our wedding, and, well, it's wasted. Do you want it? I was like, this has got to be a joke. And yet, that is who our Father is. He's not afraid to love you over the top. 
There's nothing that he sees that is frivolous or ridiculous that he hears from you and thinks, well, I'm not doing that. Is that really a need now? He doesn't care if you need it or not. He wants to be good to you, over the top good to you. He's not ashamed of being over the top good to you. He's not afraid of what the angels are going to say. God, you're spoiling them now. You better not be giving them that. No, he is desperate, falling over himself. The Bible says he rises from his throne to show us compassion. It's his delight to be over the top, lavish, abundant, generous to us. One of my bugbears about the parable of the lost son is that we often call it the parable of the prodigal son. I have a problem with that. The word prodigal means lavish. There was only one person who was lavish in that parable, and it certainly wasn't the son. When we say the parable of the prodigal son, what we do is equate lavishness, um, desire for pleasure with something that is bad. It is not. Our father is the most lavish, abundant, extravagant, desiring of pleasure being there is or ever will be. You cannot outdo him with your extravagance. You cannot outdo him with your desire for abundance because he is overflowing with it all of the time. That is the parable of the prodigal father or the lost son. Never the prodigal son. The father is not displeased with your desire for extravagance and pleasure. He just wants to point you to where it's found. He is a lavish father, over the top, generous and good. He wants to do good to you. Luke 12 says... This beautiful thing that I love and I live with most of the time, Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure, his delight, his joy to give you the kingdom. We're not twisting his arm. We're not begging him, desperate for him to move. He's saying, ooh, ooh, is it my turn to give you the kingdom? Ooh, ooh, does anyone want to partner with me? Because he's literally like a little child, impatient with joy to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid. And James tells us, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. The devil loves to bring this deception that the Father doesn't want to be good to you or cannot always be counted on being good or may not want to be over the top, may be measured or controlled in his goodness to you. That is a lie from the devil. Don't be deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived. Every time the devil comes to you and says, oh, God's not really interested in that. He's not going to do that for you. Or, oh, are you struggling with sickness? Well, that's definitely from God because he wants to teach you a lesson. The father is good through and through, and he paid for every sickness on the cross. There is not a single sickness that the father gives because he would not undo his own work on the cross for you. There is never a moment where sickness comes from God. 
That is a lie that has crept in on the church and every believer who believes that struggles to see healing because they never know whether it's God's will to heal or not. He is through and through a healer. He cannot help but be himself. He is a lavish God and is not ashamed or afraid to love you over the top. He does not want to withhold good from you. If you're experiencing sickness, death, loss, I know where that comes from. It's not God. You might find yourself in a battle. The devil is a liar and all sickness and loss comes from him. The father is good and wants to restore you and promises beyond that to bring good even from the enemy's tactics. But he's not a father who teaches you with loss or illness. That would make him evil. And he's good. I'll move on. He never punishes his children. I love it. <laughs> they Younger son returns, rehearsing his speech because he's a bit nervous, thinking, how am I going to convince my dad not to kill me? Because Jewish law stated that rebellious sons should be stoned. (laughs) And he's rehearsing his speech, thinking, gosh, I really do hope that I don't die and that my father takes me back. What he deserved was punishment. What he gets is a father who runs quickly to him. We'll talk about that a little bit more in my next session. Who lavishes favor and goodness on him. And the older son is incensed because he was waiting for the younger son to be punished. Jesus reveals to us a father who was not interested in punishment. What we often do is that we use the word discipline and punishment interchangeably. And what that has meant is that for most people, not just Christians, I think this is fair of most people, if someone says discipline, we equate that in our heads with punishment. I want to talk about the difference. Because God is a God who is interested in discipline, but he's not a God who's interested in punishment. Here's the difference. Punishment looks to your past and repays you for your sin. You do something wrong, the consequence of that is that you get punished. Yeah? It's fear-based. You do something wrong and you're afraid because you know the consequence that's coming will be negative to you. That's punishment. Discipline is a completely different idea because discipline is not past-focused. It's future-focused. Discipline is not looking at the sin that you have committed, repaying you for that. It is looking forward to your destiny and is empowering you for that. Runners discipline their bodies. They're not punishing themselves for their mistakes. They're empowering their bodies. They're building spiritual muscle because they've got their eye on the prize. So they're building the muscle to run for it. Discipline and punishment are not the same. Listen, God is never, ever, 
ever going to repay you for your sin. No matter how many times you sin, I'm telling you this right now, Jesus took every punishment upon himself on the cross. You don't need to be punished. There is no anger in the heart of God towards your sin. It's spent. It's gone. He will never punish you. Go out of this meeting and do the worst sin imaginable. You're not going to get a punishment from him. Discipline is completely different because he is committed to empowering you for your destiny. He is absolutely committed to that. So he will introduce things sometimes and often preferably through his favor, if we'll learn through favor. He wants to build spiritual muscle on you so you can run to win that race and reach the prize. He's not interested in punishment. And so many of us are crippled by the fear of what God will say or do. So not only are we too scared to sin, we're too scared to do anything, to take any risk, because what if I fall and make a mistake? And so we're Christians caught in the headlights, unable to do anything interesting or exciting because God might smite me if I get it wrong. How could I possibly tell anyone about Jesus? What if I get my words all jumbled up and actually speak some heresy and then God's going to be really angry at me? No, he's not. He's not attracted to your performance. He's attracted to your faith. Hebrews 11 tells me that it's not my performance that counts, but what he sees is faith and faith brings him pleasure. And actually, if you read Hebrews 11, God sees all of the people in Hebrews 11 through rose-tinted glasses. That lens is called grace because their faith, even though for some of them it's difficult for us to see if we read the Old Testament accounts, but their tiny, tiny portion of faith pleased the heart of God. And so they're counted in the hall of fame of Hebrews 11. He's not attracted to your performance. He's attracted to your faith. Don't be crippled by fear. I loved what Laura said yesterday, her testimony that was so powerful. The God who brings love that wipes everything away. When we understand his love, fear is gone. He's a father who's not interested in punishing you. And finally, he's a father who's full of joy. I want just to look at the the last bits of each of these parables again. Verse 6, when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 9, when she found the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy before the angels of God. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. In every parable, the key figure who initiates joyfulness and celebration is the father figure. 
I love it with the lost coin parable because it says there will be joy before the angels of God. The angels are celebrating, but actually this parable draws our attention to the one who stands before the angels, the father himself, telling us your father is a joyful father in the midst of the angels. They will be beholding his joy over your lives. And ultimately, the Father invites everyone into a celebration because his son has come back home. When you read parable after parable after parable in the Gospels, often the master in that says to his faithful servants, come and enter your master's joy. Your father is a joy-filled father. Joy is his idea and originates and spills out from him. He is a God of laughter. If you want to partner with God, the best way to do it is by laughing. Because he is a God of laughter. Whether in warfare warfare or in joy, he is a God of laughter. Let's partner with him some more. Julian was saying yesterday, seriousness is not a sign of maturity. It's not. God is not a serious, solemn father. (laughs) Read parable after parable. He's not. He's a father who loves feasting. He's a father who loves weddings. He's a father who loves laughter and joy. The Pharisees hated Jesus because they equated spirituality with seriousness. And here comes this guy who's claiming to show them what the Father in heaven is like. And he's laughing. And he attracts the poor and the broken and those who like to have a good time. And they're angered by it. How dare you? You frivolous guy who's laughing all the time. How dare you claim you're like what God is like? God is serious and solemn. But they had not read the Old Testament where it talks about how he will be, he will have the oil of joy, the oil of gladness beyond his companions. How at the right hand of the Father there are pleasures evermore. How joy flows from his throne. They'd never understood any of those verses. They'd never seen the Father for who he really is. A Father of joyfulness and laughter for what they hadn't understood is this the bible tells us his joy is your strength joy is not frivolity it's strength it's power if you're living in anemic christianity and you're wondering what is wrong i want to ask you how much joy is there in you because joy equals strength Take out joy and I'm willing to bet you're lacking in strength. You want to learn how to do warfare? Please, please, please don't find some mountaintop and pull down whatever things you want to be pulling down. Because first of all, we haven't been told to do that. And second of all, there's a much easier way of warfare and intercession. And it looks like getting seriously happy in God and laughing at the lies of the enemy. I tell you what, that's how you do warfare. Look at a lie that the enemy has said or a situation that the enemy wants you to think is utterly disastrous. Write it on a piece of paper 
Look at how good your father is and start laughing. And laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh until tears are streaming down your face and your stomach hurts because you realize just how ridiculous the enemy is and start declaring into being the truth and the goodness of God. You do warfare like that and the world will be changed because joy is strength and there is no strength apart from joy. Hmm, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Your father is neither careless nor forgetful. He's full of compassion and love and attention for you. Your father is lavish and over the top. He is not ashamed to love you over the top. Your father has no interest in punishing you, but he will empower you for greatness and destiny. Your father is neither solemn nor controlled and measured. He's overflowing with joy, always. Why don't we just wait for a moment? Open up your hands. Opening up your hands isn't a ritual. It's not about a formula. It's just saying, I'm opening up my heart. And so do that in whatever way you feel most comfortable. Often it is by opening up your hands as a decision to open up the heart. The Bible talks about repentance, not just about saying sorry, but actually the word repentance is about changing the way you think. And so many of us have thought things like the Pharisees that were entirely incorrect about the Father and have pinned things on him that are just not right. And in this moment, as the Holy Spirit is here with his tenderness and his love, and his comfort. I want to encourage you to open up your hearts and just to start speaking out really quietly. It doesn't need to be a loud thing. There's a stillness in this room which is from the Father. But just start repenting of some of the lies you've bought into, some of the deception that you've allowed the enemy to bring, that your Father doesn't really care about you, that that your Father has forgotten you, that he's forgotten what he said over you, that your Father is going to let those waves overwhelm you in that boat. Those of you with the resounding questions of whys and disappointments in your hearts, allow the Holy Spirit to answer even the deeper questions and to take out the sting of pain that has paralyzed so many of you. It's time to repent of believing God is out to get you if you make a mistake. As to being crippled by fear of punishment. God, we repent. We choose to change the way we think. You are a God who is not interested in punishing us, for you've taken all the punishment. We're free. And some of us have simply believed in a God that is ever so measured, ever so controlled, rather than the childlike fascination, (laughs) the wonder, the joy that bubbles up from him 
In Chesterton's world, words, we've grown older than our father. And it's time to say, Papa, <laughs> help me see you as the joyful God <laughs> and let the fruit of the spirit <laughs> with joy bubble up within me again. I'm anemic in my Christianity. Pour in me the strength of joy. Some of you are so used to keeping a lid on your emotions that you've forgotten how to laugh. Even your laughter is controlled. You think about it when you laugh. That was probably enough laughter. Stop now. And there's something the Father wants to do, which is break the banks of your emotion. But he's going to partner with you in that because he's not going to force his hand. But this might be time for us to start saying, Papa, take the lid off. Set me free. I say yes to the joy of the Spirit. And some of us have experienced pain from our earthly parents, both mothers and fathers. And there's some stuff that we just need the Holy Spirit to heal. The Holy Spirit wants to help you to forgive. Let that person go, and I'll talk about that in my next session. But even for now, let that person go, not for their good, but for yours. For that person is like a weight around your neck. And even in this moment, some of us need to just choose to forgive. I let that person go. That's not saying what they did wasn't wrong, but it's saying, God, I want to live in the realm of your grace and your goodness, and I cannot carry this person with me any longer to do that. And the Holy Spirit is here like a healing balm to heal the pain of hearts that have experienced painful family life. Your father is a good father, and he wants to bring freedom from past pain to you. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, keep breathing. Spirit of adoption, keep breathing over us. Let the golden oil of the love of our Father flow over each and every one of us. Just as you're receiving, keep receiving. I wonder if I could get the team to come up, please. Please stand on both sides of the stage so that there's options for guys. What I want to do is that what we're going to do as a team is we're going to offer some hugs. This may sound a little bit strange. But I know that this is powerful because we've done it before and people get set free. Because there's something about Papa's love that is transferred as the body of Christ offers physical affection to each other. And the men and women who are standing up here are, are going to be conduits of his love and affection. Look, we as a team, we're not special people. <laughs> We've not got any more superpowers than you do. But we are conduits of Papa's love in this moment as you pull on faith, in faith on that. And so what I want to encourage you is, I'm going to encourage you guys to come up as you want. We've got about five, ten minutes before we close the meeting. 
if God has been pinpointing some stuff where you need a fresh hug from your heavenly papa, I want to encourage you to come up and get a hug. Guys, go to the guys. Girls, go to the girls. Eldership couples, if you don't mind coming and helping us once you've got a hug, if you want one. But I'm just going to leave it open. And do you know we're not even going to have any soft music playing in this moment? We don't need to manipulate the atmosphere. God is here and is doing something so beautiful. Because he's so kind. So feel free, guys. I'm going to get a hug. And then I'm going to start giving some. And this is how we're going to end the meeting. Once you've got your hug, keep meeting with Jesus or leave. I think the next session is going to start at 2. Is that right? 2. So it's going to be an open-ended close to this meeting. Come and get a hug, love on someone, have some lunch. God bless you.